The Center for Executive Development serves organizations by providing fully customized executive education programs rooted in Texas A&M's core values. Together, we will identify your goals and design a curriculum that is tailored to your organization's unique culture. Through a variety of business training and leadership development, we will help you lead with excellence. Visit tamuexec.com to learn more. Welcome to May's Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deere, the Assistant Dean for Graduate Programs, and we're here with your amazing host, Ben Wiggins. How are you doing today, Shannon? I'm doing well. And if you say it's a beautiful day in Aggieland, I will stop the show right now. It's kind of a it's kind of a gross day in Aggieland. Kind of gross. That doesn't happen very often, but unfortunately today it is not a super beautiful day. And it, and it should it should be spring and it's 20 degrees. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes that happens. But it's still a beautiful day. And I, you know what? I wonder if the groundhog saw his shadow this year. I, Do we have six more weeks of winter? I have no idea. When does that happen? I don't know, but it feels like it's a hundred weeks of winter this year. Of like right. a kind of mild winter, but completely raining. And just, we can stop talking about the weather now. The Game of Thrones people are really happy because winter really is coming. It really is coming. <laughs> and so is Game of Thrones. All yeah. right. So our guest today is Dr. Brandy Plunkett. She is the executive director of the Center for Executive development. She is important to the world because the Center for Executive Development is educating leaders in business and really working with companies to customize their training and education experiences. And it's really much more than just about business education, but about making sure that culture permeates through an organization and especially through the high performers that have been identified within that organization. I really, really enjoy the interview that you're about to listen to. It was, we went down a lot of rabbit holes and I enjoyed each and every one of them. I'm in a way I'm responsible for each of them, but Dr. Plunkett's answers were very well reasoned and she's a really effective deep thinker. So let's get into the episode. Our guest today is the executive director at the Center for Executive Development at Mays Business School, Brandy Plunkett. How are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's Good. a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks well, for joining us. Thank you. It's a real honor to be here. So let's start with our icebreaker question. What is your favorite superpower? Oh, um, favorite superpower, flexibility. Because oh. it keeps you not quite as frustrated if you can be flexible and adjust when you need to. So would you be like Plastic Man with like the long <laughs> oh, limbs, like that kind of flexibility? Yeah, let's go with that. Or okay. st- well, see, I'm old, so it would be Stretch Armstrong okay. or something like that. There you go. Like the Go-Go Gadget, <laughs> Go-Go Gadget arms, things like yeah. that. Where, at, at what point does that become a liability? Like if you're stretching up into outer space, mm-hmm. that could probably still kill you. Or could it? <laughs> well... You know, if you're talking superpowers, I'm 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 kind of strapped. But flexibility, too much <laughs> flexibility in in work is uh, can make you seem indecisive or uh, make it too easy to try to flex when maybe you really need to stick with what you're doing. So I don't know. Let's see, and as a superpower that might get you turned into a knot instead of. <laughs> True, I can't I can't tie myself into a knot. <laughs> yeah. No, but. In terms of the things, so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about what flexibility does give you, and it, 
is there a situation you could describe where flexibility, where there could have been two correct responses and you felt it was mm-hmm. better to take the more flexible response? Can I reframe that just a tad bit? Okay. Please. So two responses, uh, two options, and one is the one that you want and one is the one that somebody else wants. Sure. Um, and so you have to be flexible. So first it, it's about what's in the best interest of whatever the situation is, right? Trying to be objective and think about, okay, what are, what are we trying to accomplish and what's the best way to go about that? And if there's two good options, then sometimes being flexible can play to your advantage uh, or it can be the, in the best interest of everyone. So for example, let's say a client wants something. For us, we have clients and they want to go a certain route to try to, to deliver uh, a particular type of training to their group. Mm-hmm. And you know we might probably have some opinions about that because we do that every day, but they have opinions about it because they're coming from their own context. And so it's important to be flexible to make sure that we're not so mired in our own way of thinking that we can't step outside of that and see value in doing something a little bit different way and flexing a little bit so that we accomplish the same goal, but we do it in a way that is in alignment with what the client needs. Mm-hmm. That's and that's that's kind of where my head goes. I know it's awfully serious for so early in the morning. But. No, no, that's <laughs> we're, we're we're here to we're here to get real answers. So what so what guides your thinking? Let's just invent a client. Okay. Let's say that they're wanting to do something that you think is a really bad idea. Would would then you say to them, "Here is kind of what we're thinking, and you might." There might be some regrets about this later for these reasons and those reasons. And then if they just say, yes, we understand that we'd like to go ahead, then you say, okay, like, what does that conversation look like? It's a very carefully crafted conversation (laughs) because we have had that before where a client that maybe hasn't used a university or a place like us for executive executive development, Mm -hmm. they're trying to drive the bus instead of letting us do you know, that, that job. Yeah. Um, and so it really is about building a relationship and building a trust. And when they're trying to, if, if, if a client wants to do something, that's really not a great idea right up front, that can be really difficult because we haven't had time to build that relationship and they don't know that they can trust us. Um, and so it becomes a lot of listening, a lot of listening to what they're trying to get to. And then showing them other alternatives without seeming like we're telling them, you know, what you're wanting is a really dumb idea <laughs> or not going to get you what you want. So it's it's about reframing things. And then sometimes it's about just letting them, you know, going ahead and going with it and then coming back and debriefing. They figure out it didn't work and then we adjust. Mm-hmm. And that's um, not fun, but sometimes that's necessary depending on how much rapport we've developed. And then but once we let that, sometimes you have to let things fail. Mm-hmm. Um that's an opportunity to build more rapport because you handle that with a lot of, you know, no, I told you so's or anything like that, but just, Hey, okay. I know where you were going with this. Let's, you know, have you thought about this? Let's try something else. And then, you know, engaging them in that redirect so that it really becomes an opportunity to build that relationship and build that trust. And that's really kind of our hallmark in the center is we will do things the way that we need to do it for the client, a lot of places have their programs and they want to deliver the program itself to a client. And we really focus on who the client is and what they're trying to accomplish. And then we adjust ourselves to try to deliver that in the way that works best for that client where they're at. Well, that seems like an intelligent approach. Every client is a little bit different. They are. Have you ever gotten into a conversation with a client where it seemed like they wanted something 
perhaps a little bit insane. And then you had a conversation <laughs> with them to uncover what their need really was. And then you discovered that you could actually give them what they needed in a completely different way than what they were asking for. And in a way that was maybe slightly less insane. <laughs> that is so specific. Probably. Yes. I, yeah, I mean, you can answer you can answer the question yeah. any way you want, but it's more about maybe a, like the, the importance, the question plays to the importance of uncovering sort of the need beneath the request. Oh, yes. That's a big part of of kind of starting our work with anybody is not only hearing what they say, but hearing what they don't say mm. and asking questions that kind of bring those things out. Because again, you know, executive development, training, teaching and learning, that's our expertise. That's not the expertise of a COO or a CFO necessarily, or a CEO of a, of a particular type of company. And so uh, our job is really to hear what they're saying and Usually they come to us for a couple of different reasons. They're either in pain over something, they have a pain point, mm -hmm. they're trying to build a pipeline of leaders, or they have a specific area like finance or something where they're trying to just develop that particular piece for a particular part of the organization. And so it involves a lot of, a lot of listening for what they're saying and then, yeah, listening for what's not being said, but then asking those questions to kind of pull those things out. And I'll give you a quick example. So we had a, a client several years ago, it was a kind of a small, small to mid-sized company. And they were a company that had started off as a single owner, a uh, software development and grew really, really fast. Good. So they, yeah, good for them, mm -hmm. except for when you grow that fast, you don't necessarily grow with intentionality. And so they go out and hire all these Ivy League people to develop all this <laughs> stuff. And they come to us and they say, well, um, we need some help with communication and conflict management because all of our mid-managers can't get along with each other. So now they all work from home and we can't get anything done. Hmm. Okay. So that's, that's where you talk about, this is what my symptom is. So they're talking at the, at the, at the point of a symptom, right? So it's our job to listen to that, hear the stories behind that, ask more questions. And as we did that, we, it was pretty easy for me to see fairly quickly that it wasn't a conflict in communication. Cause if we were going to teach them communication skills and conflict management, they would just fight more skillfully. Right. The problem was their systems. <laughs> I like that. I like that. We're going to remember that. I'm going to use that one with Kyle. I'm They're going to use better words when they have Kyle. conflict. But what was really happening was that their processes were kind of designed for them to conflict. So in oh. other words, the process that one person had to work through, if, if that person was doing what they needed to do, it actually impeded this person over here who was trying to do what they needed to do. So their, hmm. their systems and processes were designed in a way that designed conflict. And so it took a lot of talking, bringing in an expert faculty member to have the conversation that needed to be held to get their mind off of the symptom and onto what was really going to be the long-term fix. And again, that's where you're building rapport, you're building trust, you're not trying to rush to a, a solution. So an HR, maybe a, an HR specialist that's been sent to go find training, they call and they want to order off the menu. We would like conflict resolution and communication skills, and that will fix us. And we need to get in and talk to people at the higher levels and say, okay, I think that's not going to solve the problem. You know, let's talk about this. Let's figure this out because you have to talk to the people at the higher level so that they have the ability and the power to shift the focus. And then we were able to go in and really do some cool stuff with that company. So that's a lot great. Of fun. Yeah. So let's back up. Tell us a little bit about your career path and what led you to executive education. 
okay, well, I would love to tell you that this was all by design and I saw myself at, you know, 18 years old running an exec ed center, but that is not the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and here, here either, by the way. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of people never dream of what they will actually end up doing later on in their career. But um, I've had about I've had three different careers, but they're all the 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 common thread that runs through all of them is learning, teaching and learning and training and development. So my first career was actually public school teaching. I was an elementary school teacher. Yeah. But what we were doing in that district was actually using business principles in the classroom. So I was doing mission statements with first graders in 1995. Right. And using run charts and histograms and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that kind of led to going back to graduate school because the consultant that was working with our school district happened to be a professor from Texas Mm A&M. I got my undergraduate from A&M. I'd been teaching for 10 years, started doing all that, that kind of teaching in that district to started training teachers all around the country. It was a lot of fun. Asked him, I said, what do I do if I want to train teachers full time? I kind of like this teaching adults thing. And so he recruited me to come back to A&M, which is how I got back to College Station and I was working on my PhD, got a job somewhere else working with emergency responders, but doing leadership development, training and development, overseeing all of their, um, how they built their system. Mm -hmm. And so my, my graduate degree was in adult learning, but then also in process improvement, things like that. So the job that I had while I was in grad school allowed me to use all of that. And I started developing programs. And so and those had financial responsibilities. They had so I had the whole gamut. It was kind of like running little small businesses because it was a even though it was a state agency, it was a very entrepreneurial, enterprise based organization. We trained like eighty five thousand students a year in sixty different countries, and so it was a huge process that we built. And then because I kind of got a reputation for being able to build a program, then they kept handing me broken stuff and asking me to fix it. So <laughs> next thing you know, I'm running marketing and I'm running all these other things. Anyway, and all during that time. One of the people here at Mays, who was our assistant dean for exec ed, Ben Welch, whatever was going on over here, they were looking for a director to kind of come in and uh, diversify the client base in the center. So he called me one day and said, hey, would you be interested in something like this? And it was just really good timing. So we started talking and next thing you know, I'm over here trying to do another build a program. So not something that I ever thought I'd be doing, but I absolutely love it. And it's it's a nice progression from understanding how the brain works and teaching and learning with small people, then learning it with adults, then um, doing training and development while also learning the business aspects of running programs and having that financial responsibility and that leadership responsibility. And then coming here, it's just like, it's, it doesn't look like it, but it is kind of a stair step. Sure. So you mentioned teaching kids, teaching adults. What is different about the way kids learn versus the way adults learn, other than the knowledge base, obviously? Do kids learn faster? Do they learn differently? What what how are those processes the same and how are they different? Well, I can give you the textbook answer and then I can give you the experienced teacher answer. Please do both. Do both. <laughs> well, the textbook answer, and it and there is truth to this, obviously. There's a lot of research on it, but um you're talking about it's really more the difference in the way adults learn because adults come to you with experiences already. Mm-hmm. And so adults tend to be more constructivist in their learning. You know, they want to build meaning based on you. Atta- you you're, you're talking about things based on experiences they already have. Whereas with younger children, you're giving them the experiences and teaching them okay. more skills based things. So when you're uh, so, for example, in exec ed, uh, we're, we're not sitting there teaching them like we would teach a college class 
we're doing things that are very facilitative. It's talking about things that they're dealing with right now and giving them uh, maybe introducing in some cases, new information, and in other cases, it's reminding them of information and then asking them to look at it in a different way Mm -hmm. and giving them lots of time to talk together and talk about how to apply that back into work when they go back. A lot of project-based things. Um, A lot of companies want to give their people projects that are based on their company and give them the opportunity to use everything that we've covered with them to apply that knowledge and then add value back to the organization. So for adults, it's about connecting what you're trying to teach or what you're trying to share with them with what they already know. Mm. And that creates new meaning or new knowledge or new perspectives. You mentioned that it's a very interactive process for adults. Do you think, how, how much of that do you think is their need to synthesize it themselves? And how much of it do you think is the fact that you can't trust kids to stay on task necessarily? (laughs) Well, you know, here's my thing. When I was uh, fresh out of teaching elementary school and coming back and studying adult ed, I was running around saying there is no difference because I was giving students experiences in the classroom too. And we were connecting that. But I, I will agree that, you know, students don't have life experiences that adults have, but students need experiences too. If you're just sitting there having them suffer in a chair and doing worksheets, you're not teaching, right? So we were always, you know, doing all kinds of crazy things to take advantage of either the seasons or chemistry or food or whatever was happening in the and using that to teach. But but you are teaching more skills with children. And now I've totally forgotten your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just so let, let me now that you've said that, let me phrase the question in, in a slightly different way. When you trust and, and I'm not talking about undergrads now. I'm just I'm talking about elementary school, your your prior experience when you're teaching children like re- legitimate children. And is it your experience that if you try to make it an interactive process, like how much of that can you trust kids with? Oh, and you can trust that you just set it up right. So. Okay, so this for, is fascinating to me. Yeah, we, we are going to get back to the center, but I will. I'll, please, I'll, please. I could talk about this all day long. Yeah. Um, so, one of the things that we used to do in my classroom was well, this in this district where we were teaching, we would uh, do a benchmark test three times a year. So you're a first grader, and you're taking a little test at the beginning of the school year over everything you're supposed to know. So naturally they don't do very well. So you get them through that. Mm -hmm. And then you do it again at the middle of the year and at the end of the year. But what that does is it gives you, it was data-based decision-making and data-based teaching, right? So Mm -hmm. they would get tested on all these things. We would get the results. And as a class with six-year-olds, we would fill out the little squares on a on a graph and we would see and it would paint a picture for them so if we were looking at our math skills and one bar was really high in counting uh-huh. then we would say okay well that means what does that mean that means we're really good at that so but look at this bar over here this is kind of a short bar so what do you think we should work on and they would naturally know well, we need to work on these things so expand that to everything else and and you're teaching them to think about what it is they need to be learning and so when you start off with a mission statement and i can still remember the last one or at least part of it it was we come to school to learn so we can grow up and be good adults and take care of ourselves and our family or something like that so you do an exercise so every day we'd say the pledge and we'd say our purpose for coming to school and so you tie all that data and what we're working on to the purpose and you you you're working all the, all the time during the day. And so if we're, I don't know, it's, you know, October and we're counting pumpkin seeds or whatever, you're saying, okay, so 
this is fun. We're going to do this and we're going to learn about pumpkins, but we're also counting in all these different ways. And which thing on our data is this going to help us do better? And so they know that even though we're having fun, we're doing it for a reason. And mm-hmm. you're, you're just always making those connections for them. So they're engaged in their own learning at, at a six-year-old level. You know, you're coaching them a lot. And then when you do conferences with parents, it's not a teacher-led conference, it's a student-led conference. And they sit with their parents and say, you know, here's what I'm really good at. Here's what I need to work on. You know, let's talk about how I can do, you know, what can we do at home to help? And it's it's putting that in the hands of the student. And when you do that, even at such a young age, it makes sense to them and they become engaged and they, sure. they really are more active. So you're not having to trust them to to do what they're supposed to do because they have a reason for doing it now. It's not that, just because I said so. <laughs> right. No, that's, that's fascinating. So what there's like four different questions I want to ask right now. <laughs> what? So my first question is how much additional time do you have to spend gathering, you know, like you're, you're talking about database driven learning, how much additional time to, do you have to spend getting the information so that you have it in, you know, for each of your individual students, mm-hmm. when you're going to sit down with them and their parents is, was there a lot of extra work that you had to do to gather all that information or was it really pretty straightforward? Well, teachers always have a lot of work to do. <laughs> that district, which was Leander ISD, just north of Austin in Cedar Park, Texas, um, they, as a district, were doing this. So from a from data collection perspective, they were helping with that quite a bit. So the district created the tests, they analyzed them, they gave us the results. Then as an activity in class, we filled out our little charts and, and those, you know, we put those across the top of the chalkboard, whatever. When it came time to do student-led conferences, because you're doing this stuff all the time, it would be a matter of sitting down with each child throughout the day and saying, okay, what's our plan for when mom and dad come up or when aunt so-and-so or grandma or whoever comes up? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we just quickly go through some things. So they're talking about, I mean, they're not you know, college level conversations, but they know what they're good at. They know what they need to work on. And then we talk about some ideas at home and then they share that with their parents. So they show them drawings and they show them stories that they've done and they talk about what they're really proud of. And then they talk about what they want help with. And it's, it's, it's just part of what we do. I, I can't say that it's everything was time consuming. <laughs> so it's just part of what we did. I don't know if I can answer that question really well. No, it, that, that answer makes sense. All right, let's let's roll forward. Talk about if if you would the Center for Executive Development. Mm-hmm. Just give us a brief overview. Okay. Um, well, the unlike most centers in a you know in a college, most centers are geared towards the students in the college, right? So if you have the Center for Retailing Studies, that's for marketing students, or uh, the Center for International Business is for students that are studying that. Well, the Center for Executive Development is actually uh, not dealing with college students. We're obviously working with executives and people that are out of college. So when I talk about what we do and why we do it, it's really, a, it's kind of a twofold answer. So we have a role in the college, but we also have a purpose and a mission with our clients. Mm-hmm. So the center is, is it, we fund ourselves. There is no money given to our center from the college. Our job is to generate revenue to give back to the college, right? So we have to pay for ourselves and then we have to have enough, we have to be able to make enough money that all the basically technically profits go back to the college so that the dean or and and the college level leadership can decide um, to put that towards scholarships or research or 
you know, building expansion or whatever they want to do with it. So it's a great thing for the for the college. That's our role is to generate revenue. So if if we were losing money year after year after year, then we wouldn't be meeting our goal, even if we were doing great work for clients. Mm -hmm. Right. But then there's our mission and our purpose from a client perspective and the actual, the thing that we do for people. And so that is, you know, our mission is to educate and empower transformational leaders for a global society, which is in alignment with what the college's vision is, right? To advance the world's prosperity and to create transformational leaders. So we operate in alignment with the strategy and the emphasis of the college, but we are operating kind of like a business. And in that way, we have to think about who our clients are and serving them in the best way possible. And the great thing that we have to offer is that we have the Mays faculty. We leverage that wonderful world-class faculty at Mays, and they're the ones that teach the programs. So we most of what we do is customized programming, which means uh, organizations come to us and they either say, okay, well, we want a leadership development program that's a, you know multidisciplinary. We want some decision-making, some finance, some leadership, some you know, team building, whatever, whatever they want. Some programs are like that. Mm -hmm. Some programs are, you know, hey, we're trying to get all of our people financially savvy in our organization. So we need finance for non-financial managers because we have all these people that have elevated to the place where they have financial responsibility, but there weren't finance majors. So we need to get them some support. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, whatever it is that the client wants, we work with them to kind of flesh that out. And then we work with faculty, uh, faculty come in and help you know, flesh it out a little bit further. And then the faculty create the um, sessions that they teach for that company. Um, sometimes it can be a session where it may not vary that much from one client to another. So in other words, strengths-based leadership or uh, leadership just in general, understanding what leadership is and, and how that looks. That can be more conversationally driven or something like that. Other times, sessions are highly, highly customized. So, for example, a finance, you know, we've had faculty that have gone in and worked with the CFO, gotten all the numbers and the financial information from that company so that they could use that information when they're teaching in that session, because it makes a lot more sense to people from that company if they're learning their own numbers while they're learning all of these new skills and concepts. Sure. Um, and that takes a lot of time uh, and a lot of skill on the fact of, on the on the side of our, our faculty. But that's what we bring to the table is we have excellent, excellent faculty that do an amazing job. Um, and we have, you know, the brand of Mays Business School and Texas A&M, which is a powerful brand. And it's, you know, we, we have a big responsibility to be, to honor that brand and not tarnish it in any way. So we always are working to make sure we're doing the very best we can possibly do. And so that's where we spend most of our time. But at the end of the day, we're a business and we need to generate revenue because that's why we're here. We're here to provide opportunities for research and for scholarships and for things to help the college. So kind of a twofold thing, but that's how we operate. Typically client by client, how big are the groups? How many executives are you working with for company EFG? Most of the time, the class, are you talking about class size? Well, so a corporation comes to you, maybe it's yeah. a big company, maybe it's a small company, and they say, we want you to work with our executives. So a lot of people hear Center for Executive Development, and they think mm -hmm. this is where an executive comes to improve themselves, but really it's more happening on the company, at the company level, mm -hmm. is the way you're describing it. So when a company brings you their executives, so to speak, right. how many are they bringing you at once? 
Well, they'll bring us usually 25 to 35 at a time. Okay. Because that's kind of what our classes hold. Okay. okay. And also more than that, uh, because we do a lot of hands-on things, if you get much bigger than 40 people, it's very difficult to manage that. Right. But we have on occasion done some larger classes. But yeah, it's the Center for Executive Development. But a lot of times these are high potential people who are moving towards executive. Mm -hmm. So we're where you don't wait until you're an executive to start training, right? So, sure. yeah, um, but usually it's about 25 to 35 people, but they'll have multiple iterations. And so there's one company or two different companies that we do four sessions a year. Mm. So it'll be, you know, 100 to 150 people a year. Um, and they may have a thousand people that they're trying to get through the program, or they may have 400 people. But by the time they get those people through, there's others matriculating in. And so it's an ongoing program. Others, it's a little more limited. We we try to invest specifically in long-term relationships because mm -hmm. number one, that's our value. We want to, the more we can partner and know an organization, the better we can serve them. And so little one-time things, it's not, well, it, it doesn't yield as much for our efforts and it's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming for great partnerships. And and I've seen the difference between organizations that really let us in and let our faculty in and we truly become partners and how powerful that is versus somebody that's coming for a booster shot on something. And we can do that. It's just not what we try to focus on. What's the skill you have to teach most often? Like what's your most frequent class? Well, what's most requested? Yes. Um, oh, that's a good, there's a couple. Non-finance Finance for non-financial managers is okay. a pretty common one um, at the lower levels. Leadership development, just leadership in general. Get a lot of requests for that. It, you'd be surprised. It's not highly technical things. It's mm -hmm. usually um, communication or decision making or um, things that it's not that people don't know how to do them, but they're trying to advance and elevate and change people's thinking. So... So let's talk about decision-making. What is for you, what's the most surprising thing that you've learned about decision-making over the last several years? Well, that's based on, cause I teach a decision-making session. Okay. And, and, and there's a couple of people that do different kinds of decision-making sessions because there's not just, okay, now you've had decision-making, you're a great decision-maker. That's not it. Right. So the, the session that I teach, is, I like to think that that's true. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice <laughs> if you just nice. could have a, like a little recipe on how to make good decisions and you're done? Right. So the session that I teach is really getting people to look at the style of decision maker that they are. Mm -hmm. And long story short, the more you understand about how you what understanding your styles or what drives you when you're making a decision helps you see what you pay attention to when you're making a decision and what you don't pay attention to. So, mm -hmm. for example... If you're an analytical decision maker or you're dominant in analytical, you tend to want to see uh, facts and figures and data sure. and you want to have all of the data. Right. So you might take a long time before you get to a decision because you're constantly looking for the rest of the story. Whereas somebody who is a more behavioral based decision maker is much more driven by how it's going to affect people in the organization from a social perspective and, and, a, and a, a culture perspective. Sure. Both are important and both are good. But if I'm a behavioral person, it's not that I don't like data and can't use it to make a decision. It's just not the first thing I look at. The first thing I'm affected by is the people aspect, whereas an analytical, the first thing I'm affected by is the data. It's not that they don't care about people. So, okay, great. Now, what does that mean? What does that get me? Well, it just 
the more I understand that, the more I can think about a situation more objectively. So if I'm tend to be a certain way when I think about how to make a decision and I find myself in a situation that's probably that's not the best way to go, then I look for the strengths in others, the other decision-making styles. And I say, okay, tell me what I don't see here. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, so you learn to not only leverage your own strengths, but leverage the strengths of others. And when you understand those differences, what could be conflict becomes more collaboration uh, through shared understanding. And you say, okay, you know, I need my analytical person here because I'm conceptual. I like to take risks. I like to make decisions quickly. I need somebody that's going to slow me down and think through the things that I won't see naturally. And so that's that's been interesting to me. All of the biases that get in our way, our, our own heuristics of what we just won't notice when we're thinking through a decision and how that can impact the quality of our decisions. Then there's classes or there's sessions where we talk about uh, an inquiry method versus an advocacy and I, I, I've really loved learning about that myself because we're all, you know, I was raised in leadership of get your ducks in a row. You come to the table, you make your case, whoever makes the best case wins, right? If let's say you're all trying to buy for some budget right. money or something. And then you light up victory cigars. Right. Except for in order to get the victory, you have to make somebody, you have to minimize somebody else's need. Right. And then you're no longer working in the best interest of the organization. You're working in the best interest of your department or your program. Mm-hmm. And I think for a long time, that's the way we've all been kind of trained to come to the table. Is, sure, it's zero sum. Yeah, val- validate and advocate for my position and my people and my program and what I'm trying to do, which is not necessarily bad, except for when it takes over thinking about what's in the best interest of what is the decision that needs to be made in the best interest of the organization now. And when you do that from an inquiry perspective, everybody's job doesn't become to push their own agenda. It becomes to bring what they know to the table you decide what is the decision, what is a successful decision going to look like? What are we trying to get to? And then now, from my perspective, what can I contribute? And it might mean that my department gets whatever, or it might mean that somebody else's does. But what we're looking for is what's going to move the organization forward, not necessarily our own personal agendas. How do you get people to think about it that way without getting too far into the esoterica of it? How do you get people to think about what's going on in a department that is not their department and they're not really sure necessarily how it contributes to what the organization is doing? I mean, if I'm working in finance, I know accounting is important and they're right next door to me, but I I might not know as much about what I don't know, uh, sales is doing or what uh, supply chain is doing. Like, how do you get people to think about those things the right way? That is what we get. That's called silos. Uh. And uh, that is what we hear about the most in organizations is we've got to tear down the silos and get people to work across boundaries. Uh. Um, and, and, you know, we had a company that has a huge inventory problem and yet they continue to manufacture parts because manufacturing and, in, and inventory sales doesn't connect those two things. And so that company is working very hard to change a culture and create systems where there is cross communication and redefining success and all those sorts of things. It's not easy. And that's not a simple answer. That mm-hmm. is a that is a strategy or a an intention that a company has to look at many different ways to address that, depending on how they're structured. I'm hearing one of my business school professors talking in my head right now. <laughs> What do you think 
is we're so we're talking about leadership. What what do you think is the biggest thing that business culture, even as much as we've learned about leadership, what do mm-hmm. you think is the biggest thing that business culture still gets wrong, maybe completely wrong about being an effective leader? What are our biggest misperceptions? So you gave leadership? me that question early, and I have been thinking about that because I thought, oh lordy, you know, I um this is. Dr. Plunkett talking from experience watching this, but please, I, please um, in the past year, I have had the pleasure of watching a client company do things in a way that I really admire and am just wowed by them. Hmm. And what I've learned is I was thinking about this this morning. I don't, I don't know if I'm in a position to say business gets this wrong about effective leadership, but what I have this seen, one weird trick. <laughs> yeah. Harvard hates him. Um, wouldn't that be nice if there was just one weird trick and it fixed everything? Right. right. Um, but what I have seen that's different, and and I know that that leaders note they understand this. We all understand it because we've read about it in the research that um, you know we want to understand all parts of the organization that culture is important and you know if I hear one more time, culture eats strategy for lunch, you know, right? Overused phrase, but it's overused because there's a bit of truth in there. Yeah. But what I th- don't often see, you know, it seems like a lot of times culture gets well, HR is handling that or, you know, the COO is kind of in charge of that. And you don't have necessarily engagement from the top level leadership. They know what's going on. They're getting updated. Maybe they're sending out messages. But that 360-ness of leadership, mm-hmm. in other words, OK, you've got to have a good strategy and, you know, you've got to think about uh, all, all the things that need to be aligned and, you know, what we're going to, what we're moving towards and mergers and acquisitions and all those kinds of things. But, but the culture piece, it's not often that I see from the CEO all the way down where they are, they're engaged. So we talk about employee engagement, but you also need leadership engagement. Sure. And, you know, leaders can feel engaged because we're all busy doing stuff all day long. That's all we think about. But when you see a company walk in the talk and you know it's not easy for them to do that, it's impressive. So, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. So this company that I'm thinking of is going through a major transformation. They got a new CEO, newly defined core values. Mm-hmm. When they... When he took over, they didn't just have a couple of different cultures going on. They had mergers and acquisitions over times 200. So they had 200 different cultures going on, right? So they're working on bringing, uh, turning that entire multinational organization, global organization, into one organization that has the same way of working instead of everybody in a different country having their own way of doing things. That's mm-hmm. huge, right? So there's yes. a huge yes. um, I'll agree with you on that strategic one. and technical aspect that's going to take a long time. Sure. But at the same time, they're putting as much effort and attention into intentionality around culture. Uh-huh. And so what that means is when we have a program here and their their leaders are here and it's usually their it's one step below their executive. So there's like senior vice presidents. I think now we're at director level. Okay. That means on the first day of a program, I'll see the CEO, I'll see a COO. We'll have a president of a western hemisphere, we'll have presidents of huge product lines. They come just to spend 15 minutes to say this is important pay attention. We're investing in you because you're the future of this company. And then in that same week, they'll drive two hours just to have dinner with that group and talk to them for an hour and answer any questions they have, talk to them about what's going on and reinforce everything you're doing and everything we're doing with all these other 
initiatives is all about moving this company forward. And they are constantly walking the talk, repeating the message, showing examples, being the examples. And that's not, that can't possibly be easy because they're all in the middle of a really uh, intense transformation. And yet, you know, the CHRO, the COO, and somebody else will drive down here for two hours just to have dinner with their people. And then they'll drive back. And then at the end, they all come and sit and watch these presentations that they have put their people through the ringers through working on solutions to problems that the organization developed the problem, not they didn't ask us to do it. We have a, a brilliant faculty member that works with the organization to create those those projects. But the people in the company are working, developing those projects, and it's based on problems that they're really trying to solve. So I see a level of engagement from the top people doing things that you don't always see top level leaders feeling like they have the time to do mm. and they're making the time to do that. And, and, and to me, that's like the 360 they're engaged in a way that is, it's more than just words. It's more than just setting the strategy. It's more than just defining what needs to be done and then delegating it out to, you know, really great people that do a great job. They're, they're showing up. So if we're, if we're giving the one weird trick version of this, would it be something like be willing to reach several steps down the ladder to people that you might not necessarily be working with directly to tell them the things that are most important to you and to the company in a very personal way? Or how would you refine that statement? Um, I don't think it's about so much reaching like an individual reaching down a bunch of levels to another individual. Uh, and I don't know if that that's what you meant or not, but I think it's about just trying to get the nugget, like the, yeah. the, the okay. core of So this. think about Southwest airlines and sure. Herb Kelleher. He okay. was all over that company. Right? Right, right. And that's what was unique. This company is the same thing. This CEO, he doesn't show up and just to, you know, have a, a, a conversation with an individual. He's showing up with intentionality and purpose. And even on a difficult day when maybe their stock didn't do well or something, he's showing up and saying, what questions do you have? Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what we're doing. Full transparency, full confidence. Um, he's demonstrating every day that he believes in what they're doing, mm -hmm. that that this is going to move them forward and that each individual in that room matters to moving the company forward. So if I have a CEO that drives all the way, you know, two hours just to talk to me for 15 minutes, what is my level of dedication and engagement versus uh, I've been sent here for some reason that I'm not really sure my boss told me I needed to come, you know, okay, I guess I'm going to get some really cool stuff from A&M and go back and do my best to try to take it into the organization, which is, I'm, I'm painting a real stark picture. They don't usually come like that. But Larry Bossidy from Honeywell wrote a book called Execution. He said the same thing. He said, one of the, one of the mistakes leaders often make is that they think certain things are beneath them mm -hmm. and it's, they're not. Now a CEO can't go around and, and try to talk to everybody in the company and make sure things are being done and micromanage, but they can be aware by walking around enough you know, they can be aware by paying attention to those things. And more importantly, and I hate to say another cliche, being the change they want to see. So I just spent two weeks, uh, two days last week with that organization going through their culture training that they're giving to all their people. And the first thing that happened was all the top level leadership went through that exact same training. And so now when they're doing this for every person in the organization, they're saying, our CEO did this, our COO did this. 
everybody that is above you on the food chain has all been through this exact mm. same stuff because mm. it's that important. And you will hear them talking about it. And you do. You see it all over the place. And you hear them using the language. Our dean does a great job of that as well. He talks about our vision all the time. And he communicates that repeatedly so that we can't forget and so that uh, it's a reinforcer. Every time we're doing something, he's saying we're advancing the world's prosperity and here's how we're doing it. And that just shows that level of engagement from a leadership perspective. Um, I think sometimes leaders are so busy and they're so mired in so many other things, they forget that part or they delegate it out or it's the thing that falls off the table. Not because they're not doing a good job, not because they're not smart, not because they're not dedicated. It's just it's the hard. It's hard to do that. Sure I mean, I can't is. imagine being a CEO of a global organization and driving down here for 15, 20, 30 minutes. You know, that's that's a lot. Sure. What is the most important thing that has changed about business education or executive education in the last 10 years? And let's let's stay away from anything related to cell phones, connectedness, attention spans. That may be the answer, but let's uh, we, well, we've talked a lot about that on this show. When you talk about well and see, I can see that happening a lot more when you're talking about younger generations or mm. something. But when, when you asked me that question, the thing that came to my mind, because I was like, connectedness and social media. Oh, yeah, I guess so. That That's not where my head went. Okay, good. My head went to um, what people are looking for, um, the kind of the trends that we're starting to see in what companies are asking for and how we develop their people. And so we're seeing a lot more wanting coaching, individual coaching. Okay. We're seeing um, so individualized whether it's with an executive coach or with a managerial coach, teach our people how to coach our people. But there's a lot more emphasis and value being placed on that one-to-one. There's also a lot of interest in, and there I think there always has been interest in projects. But what I see is, is organization asking more for us to interact and do projects that are from the organization. Mm-hmm. So it's tailored to what they're doing, which takes a, a lot of work um, to try to, pull something out of the organization that aligns with the development you're trying to do because it means that people in the organization have to get involved and that's always, you know, a little bit tricky. But we see a lot more of that. Um, You know, a lot of people think, well, online is an exec ed. Not necessarily. You can't really teach leadership through a computer, right? So we don't see that as much. Now, I think it's a great thing for professional development, for you know, you're trying to give people some new information. And in that sense, we could probably leverage it to some degree to say, okay, we're going to learn a whole lot about, you know, international finance. There's pieces and parts that you really, we just need to give you this information so that when you get here, we can work with that and do some stuff. So we'll use technology and online learning for that so that we don't spend a bunch of class time lecturing, right? I could see that. We don't do a lot of that right now, but um, I think things are moving that way. I went to a national conference recently. There's a lot of things happening with artificial intelligence being used in training um, and using connectivity and social media to do just-in-time learning and things like that, micro-badging, all the... There's a lot of technical things that are more along the lines of professional development, and we see that happening quite a bit. So... What do you think are the best ways that business education is learning to use artificial intelligence? And what are the most cutting edge things that are happening at these conferences or um, 
you know, summits where a bunch of great business minds are all getting together in the same room and some of the best technology in the world is also available. There was a woman from a company and she was head of learning and development for that company. And they were using technology to, you know, gear towards a younger generation. So one of the things that's happening is younger generation is going to come up and they learn differently and they're used to different ways of learning things. So sure. I think one of the things we're going to be faced with is our paradigm of how do you develop an executive? And it has to do with a lot of FaceTime, a lot of one-on-one, -on -one because the value that you get, whether you're just all over the country, all over the world, or in just one big city, when you bring people into a room that are all levels of leadership at some point, even if they're just, you know, mid-level managers, but you're putting them all in the room together and you're having a discussion about leadership and the organization, they learn as much from each other as they learn from the faculty member. And so there's real value. And especially when you have higher level leaders that are from all over the world and they're talking about the same company, but it's different for them. And they're, they're building a network, they're learning from each other, they're challenging each other. And so what the faculty member brings is new ideas, new thinking and great facilitation, but there's huge learning because they're in person. So how do you capture that and bring in technology at the same time? And I, I'm, I can't speak to that really well, but I can say, I think that's what companies are starting to look at is how do we leverage AI? How do we leverage um, social media or things like that to create communities where I can say, I want to learn about this. And somebody says, well, I can teach you about that. And now you've created a connection in different parts of the organization or, or leveraging things. There may be in small ways and uh, they're short hits, but they may over time change a culture a little bit. I mean, I'm kind of getting out of my space here, but I can see that technology is is going to change organizational learning in that way. And so I think from an executive development perspective in a university setting and the way we do things, we're going to have to figure out how how that works for us. Or if we just say, that's for somebody else. We are very specialized. We create this amazing experience that you really just can't get there. on a computer. So whether you're talking about working with a six-year-old or you're talking about working with a 56-year-old, what has been the best aha moment where you saw someone struggle with something and try to figure it out and then and not do it and then they finally, like the last puzzle piece clicked into place and they got it and it... It warmed your soul. Was it? Have, has there been a moment like that for you? Lots of them Good. with little people okay. because, okay. Um, and I won't, I won't harp on that too long. But I will just say there is nothing better in life than watching a little kid, a child, learn to read, because you work and you work and you work and you work, and one day it just the light bulb goes on, mm -hmm. and then they start reading. And you, uh, you know, once you've been doing that for a while, you're just waiting for that moment, and it's the greatest feeling in the world because you just. You open up their whole world, right? So in exec ed, you don't really see that. But you see, um, I think where I have seen, because because I don't, I'm not in the classroom with the participants all that much. Like if I'm teaching, yes. And they'll come up to me after a session. Oh, this is really great. I've, I see people in a whole different way, you know. So that's nice. That's a, you know, nice little gratification there. But where I've really seen a big change is in the leadership of the organization where 
So, for example, an organization where they were really trying to drive the bus and it was, you know, a tough road because they kept wanting to drive it in a direction that wasn't going to get them what they wanted. And we knew that. Uh Um, And, you know, so it's a year of that kind of stuff. And then you finally get through the program and you see the participants at the end of the program and how they are so empowered and excited, not only about their own abilities and their new network that they have, but about going back to their organization and making changes. Mm-hmm. And then the person that you've been working with that you, you, you like each other, but you've been struggling comes and says, Oh, you were right. This is so great. <laughs> That's pretty nice. Not because he said you were right, but because, because but they because he said I was wrong. Because he said I was wrong. <laughs> no, but because because they got the value that they were really looking for, you know. And yes. at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many challenging conversations you had or how many struggles you had. The fact that they moved forward to the place that they wanted to be and they're sure. excited about it that's why we're here, you know? And so when, and sometimes it's the organizations that you struggle with the most where you get to see that biggest change, right? Um, not always, but that, that was pretty exciting. That was pretty exciting. Sounds exciting. Yeah. A lot of fun. Okay. We've, we've gone down a lot of rabbit holes today (laughs) and I have enjoyed all of them immensely, but let's move to some rapid fire. So what do you consider your most valuable failure? Oh, I thought about this forever last night. I was like, I don't think I've ever failed. Oh, I'm kidding. Huh, I'm joking. Nice. That's not true. But I'm like, okay. And I, I had it about three o'clock this morning, but it's of course now gone out of my head. Mm. I think probably it's been in the area of maybe personnel, which is why I'm, I don't want to talk about it too much, but like hiring the wrong person for mm-hmm. a job. Like I thought it was the right person. <clears throat> and when it turns out not to be, it's so, it's just, it's painful for the individual and for the organization or their manager because you don't, you know, you hire people that are talented and smart and driven. And, but if they're in the wrong place and you can't fix that, that's really tough. And, and you end up feeling like a failure because you're the one that made the decision to bring that person on board. And now that person's gone and you feel like, man, I, you know, that was, not, oh, I'm, and I'm not thinking about, you know, you have those, sometimes you have people that you're not sad to see them go, right? And they're not sad to go. But then there's those people that they leave and every, you know, they leave on good terms and everything's fine, but you realize they weren't in the best place. In the time that they worked for you, they weren't in the best place for them and it wasn't the best for your organization either. And so it's kind of looking back going, that was kind of like a slow, drawn out failure, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And so I think uh, because I'm somebody that studies, and, you know, lives in executive management or development and people and, 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 and building people up when you think that maybe you brought somebody in and it wasn't a good place for them. And that was a decision that you made. That's tough because you, you want people to be, and I'm sure that person grew and they're fine. And we all get along great. But I just like, it was a hiring mistake that was a failure because I should have known better. Or I should have seen something that I didn't see, I guess. And it had an impact on that person and on the organization. What do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? Well, I have absolutely no idea because they don't tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Okay, so I think sometimes 
It must be in the area of communication. It, it's funny, where I worked before, I worked with emergency responders, firefighters, I was the only female leader, so I had to be pretty tough. You know, I had autonomy and respect, and I was part of the team and all of that, but I, I was, you know, pretty tough. But if I said something, you know, I think people perceived me then as being just tough as nails and you're just not going to push because I had to not be pushed around. Right. But then when I came to maze, you have to shed a few scales because you're going from, you know, these type a blue collar personalities to higher education, faculty members and, and department heads and all that's a very different style of uh, organization. And I remember when I first got here, we were making a lot of changes because I was charged with kind of creating a little business where there wasn't one. How long ago was this? Four years. Okay. And so I'm thinking I'm going to be transparent and open and I'm going to call all the people together. So I, I, I did a meeting with all the department heads, the deans, everybody in leadership, only to say, hey, here's who we are and here's the plans that we have and here's where we're going and what I'm doing. And, you know, they were asking questions and I thought that was great. You know, I was like, oh, yay, my transparency is going to be, you know, this is good. I'm going to, you know, earn some respect and people know that I'm here to help and all that. And then, and then before the day was over, uh, I got called up to the Dean's office because somebody went up there and said that I was saying negative things about somebody that I didn't even know. And I thought now, wow, how did that happen? Because I, was blown away. I had like, that wasn't my intention. That wasn't anything I said. And I barely knew the person that supposedly as you know says and i thought okay well so maybe people see me in a way that i don't really get and um i'm still not quite sure what that but i think well maybe maybe they think i have more of an agenda than i that i'm not talking about maybe maybe sometimes i think people i guess you said what do, what do people misconstrue about me or something like that what is your agenda dr plunkett why are you here today no i'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, Bring value to the college. So you mentioned, and I'm going to tie this back to another question. Um, in your profile, you mentioned the impact that Dr. Brian Cole has had on your career. Tell okay. us a little bit more about that. Well, he's the one that recruited me out of elementary classroom to grad school. So okay. he impacted my life in the sense that he kind of changed the course that I was on. Mm -hmm. I don't think he that was his intention, but he opened that door that opened up a whole new world to me. So in that way, he he had a big impact on me. And the other thing is he's the one that taught, you know, the process. That's why I think in terms of process, he was very, of course, he taught at the university for 42 years. He's a professor emeritus. And so he was, he was quality management when quality management was cool, right? <laughs> Worked on the Baldridge award and the Texas award for performance excellence and all that. Right. And so that is how I was trained to think and how I was trained to think about program development. And that, is what I was innately doing when I was teaching. I just didn't know it. And so it's allowed me to use that to build programs. And then now he teaches for us in the center. And mm -hmm. so he's a mentor. He just, when I worked for him as a graduate assistant for six years, he was here when Bonfire fell. He was running his department. He had been given another department that was dysfunctional that he needed to fix. And he was asked by the president of the university to oversee this huge post bonfire, will we bring it back thing? And I have never seen somebody work as hard as he did. His day started at six in the morning and went till nine at night. And never once did he lose his temper or treat somebody badly or make it about him. I just, he, he's mission minded and he's just a, a great human being. He's just a mentor. 
for me. That's great. Normally we ask if you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? But it sounds oh, like you've already had. I have him. Like yeah. So, um, ones. I don't know. Somebody that's just totally unlike anything I've known, like, you know, maybe spend a day with Maya Angelou. She has such a different life experiences and she's had such wisdom. I'd love to spend a day with her. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the famous quote, they, they'll forget everything else, but how you made, made them, them feel. feel. That's right. And that's a big part of our business. Mm -hmm. What is your fondest memory of TAMU? Well, considering that I was an undergrad, it's a lot of things. I'm really grateful we didn't have cell phones when I was in school. But I think the fondest memory of A&M, okay, it's not a direct, I never give a direct answer. I'm sorry. But the friends that I made when I was in college, 30 years later, are the friends that I have today. Hmm. And so it's kind of like an ongoing memory. It is um, just, you know, it wasn't something like, oh, there was this one time at fish camp or something like that. It was just a lot of, just a lot of really good times that, that were because we just all really cared about each other. So now we've buried friends and birthed babies and gone to weddings and seen each other through divorces. And it's all that Aggie thing that keeps us together. So for me, it's all the little things that happened along the way that led to having these lifelong friends that are like family to me. Um, and it's hard to explain, you know, but it's, it's my, I think it's just that whole experience and that the fact that I had the opportunity to be there for that. Do you feel this place is special in that way? Oh, yes, absolutely. I don't think, I mean, I haven't gone to a lot of other universities, but I, I think that's the thing that A&M has that nobody else has. And what I love about A&M is that we try to build that in. You know, it starts with fish camp. When I was in school, bonfire was a huge unifier. Um, there's other things that students do now that are great unifiers. And then it ends with muster. You know, so it's like the circle of Aggie life, right? The Aggie circle of life. And, and all through there, we're talking about unity. And um, even though we're all different, we have this thing in common and we have these core values. And, you know, you hear all the stories about, you know, a uh, car broke down, but they had an Aggie sticker. So an Aggie pulled over to help you or you're lost in the airport and an Aggie puts you on a plane, and sends you home or whatever. Those those stories that I just don't think you get that anyplace else. And uh, I don't know. I think it's I think it's pretty amazing. There are certainly a lot of places where you don't get that. Right. I think there are other institutions that may. And I, I wouldn't. Know. I think they broach it to some degree. Yeah, right. I think. Right. Yeah. There's some schools that have some great cultures and mm -hmm. um, alum. Just yes. not like A&M. <laughs> <laughs> so we end each session with some good bull opportunity to recognize someone else for something good or great they've done. Do you have anyone you would like to send some good bull? Yes. And actually, it's the whole CED team because we just went through a renovation of our center. Okay. And that means walls were torn down. People were moved out of offices for about three months. And they're in that entire time. And we're still putting in furniture. I mean, the, the level of change and and this was going on. So we were having to do programs in hotels and you know place them outside of our center, which took a lot of extra effort from a lot of people. And throughout all of that, there was not one squabble. There was not one griping about somebody, everybody. I mean, you know, there were times where people were frustrated because we didn't agree over which plant to put where, you know, but I, you know, it was truly like, it was an easy experience and you wouldn't think that would be the case when you're trying to manage clients 
and everybody's out of sync and our offices are a mess and people are coming up over Christmas holidays to let construction crews in. Nobody's complaining. Nobody's fighting. So that whole team is just amazing to me. Be glad you don't have Kyle over there. He would have been belly aching every <laughs> single day. You would have never stopped hearing it There was it from no Kyle. complaining. And Kim Sutphin led that for us. She did a really great job, but everybody pitched in, but it was just the attitude of everybody for three straight months. Not one, not one person came in and complained to me and I had to do an intervention or anything. I mean, it was just amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, proud of that team. Dr. Plunkett, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll leave you with our Mastercast top three takeaways. I thought one of the most interesting things was to me was the discussion between the difference between adult education and childhood education and that my PhD is in adult education. So obviously this is an area of great interest to me. And I think Ben, you thought it was interesting as well. Yes. I thought that discussion was really fascinating. I'm wondering if you feel like there was anything that you'd like to add to what we were talking about. Brandy did a great job of kind of summarizing the difference, which really the crux of the difference between adult education and childhood education is that experience. And I actually see more of a a merging between the two that childhood education done well and adult education done well looks very similar. So there's actually a term for adult education. It's andragogy. So pedagogy is a, a term that's used more often, even in higher education. And it actually means child leading. Pedagogy means child leading. Andragogy means it actually means man leading, I man think. Leading. Yes, but I, but I kind of don't want that term to be what, what we use because it's human leading, maybe adult right. leading, whatever it right. is. But andragogy and that term and adult education has become much more than just andragogy, but there is a term for it. So the concepts of that are that adults really need to understand why they're learning something and there needs to be direct and immediate relevance. So adults typically learn in more of a problem solving context versus a content oriented context. So If I'm in an elementary school classroom, I can tell children that they need to learn algebra because they just need to learn algebra, right? And now, again, a good childhood education classroom, a good elementary classroom would tell children why they need to learn algebra. But you can probably get away without. I mean, I think most of my classes didn't tell me why I needed to learn it. They just made me learn it. And I was like, well, okay, we'll we'll do that. I'm wondering how well six-year-olds would respond to something like, because you got to get that money. Yeah, like yeah. Maybe uh, not so much. Although that was where we learned how to like write checks, a thing of the past. Count money was in in first grade as a, as a six-year-old. But huh. I, I think, you know, even in high school, if you told me why I'm learning algebra, the context of it, instead of just solving for X, you mm-hmm. were telling me why I might need to do that in my life. And, I, and maybe teachers did that more than I remember, but that would be a good thing. But as an adult, I might only learn algebra or go back and review algebra if I need it in a specific context, sure, sure, right? Sure. And so as an adult, I'm learning oftentimes more from a problem-based focus. I'm trying to solve a specific problem. I'm trying to figure out a recipe or I'm trying to figure out a business situation. What is the break-even point? And I need to know algebra to do it. Something like that. So it's usually much more problem-based versus I'm just learning content to learn content. And, And part of that comes from 
with children, oftentimes education is more based on what is society's needs. So we need people to read. We need people to learn about history. But as an adult, that that outside influence is not as present in my life. And so I'm looking for what's going to meet my immediate need. And and then the experience and experience really should be thought about for children or undergraduate students who are not considered adult learners, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it should be considered for undergraduate students as well because we've all had some experience in life. So for example, our experiences can be helpful. They give us something and Dr. Plunkett talked about this. They give us something to attach new learning to, but they also can guide us in the wrong directions with learning. So, so without getting too far into accounting concepts here, I did an activity with my students where I wrote down common accounting terms and I said, what do you think that these things mean based on just your experience in life? So what does goodwill mean? Well, it means something in the world and then it means something different or slightly different in accounting. So I, by acknowledging those prior experiences and the things that people knew that they had already attached to those terms, I didn't dismiss them. I just helped them translate those into the accounting version of that. So if we don't do that, then those past experiences or those past conceptions or those past things that we attach terms to or learning to can actually mislead us in new learning. Makes sense. And then even, you know, with adults, emotions, pain, hurt that you've had associated with certain things or happiness that you've had with certain things impact how we learn, what we remember, the way that we think about things. So all of those things make it slightly different as an adult learner than as a learner before adulthood. Right. So next uh, top three takeaway, I think for me, one that really jumped out was the individualization of the education experience and, and how, how the, I keep wanting to say the industry, I, the, the profession, I think industry I guess, is fair, yeah. is, is pushing toward a highly tailored experience. Absolutely. So the industry of executive education and training is moving more towards an individualized education. I think that ties in really nicely with what we said about adult learners, because if you're focused on a specific problem that you want to solve, that you want to know the answer to, Mm -hmm. then your solution, the training that you want is going to be different than the training that I want because our challenges, our problems are slightly different. Sure. Customizing education in that way is challenging. It's costly. It's time consuming. You know, Dr. Plunkett talked about one-on-one education. That's very different than the model of one to 30, which is a pretty good ratio. It's certainly different than the model of one to 800 or, you know, and, and so, so that's, that can be challenging in the education space. We see a lot of success with things like Coursera or online learning where you can just go online and get a tool that's specific to the need that you have at any certain point in time. Mm-hmm. I think that ties nicely to a third point that Dr. Plunkett talked about with executive education and the presence of artificial intelligence or AI in executive or education and training. It sounds like the thing that Dr. Plunkett understands the most about how they'll be using it is in determining where the next needs are going to be coming from. Yeah, I think that's interesting. The The analogy that came to my mind when she was talking, and I don't know if this is right or not, but the way that I think of it, and 
in the conversations that I have with companies when they talk about AI, they oftentimes refer to the Amazon model Mm. of you go and search for a pair of shoes and then Amazon starts pushing shoes to you or Amazon, the artificial intelligence behind Amazon can tell me what I might want to purchase next based on my prior purchases. And that's how when she was talking about AI or when she mentioned AI, I thought of, oh, the kind of the Amazon model for training that, you know what I've done, you know, my past experiences because you could find them on LinkedIn. It's not hard, right? You, you know what I've done. The company knows the things that I've done. They might even know some of the mistakes that they make if they're tracking that well. And so they could anticipate what training I might benefit from participating in next. It's kind of like when you're walking through HEB and you say, I, I, HEB doesn't have this one thing that I need. And then you go home and you start Googling and the, the Google search like wants to finish the thing that you were looking for at HEB. It's gross. It's so right? scary how it's ahead of so us they crazy. are sometimes. I know. Or uh, it that ad pops up on your phone somehow yes. because it was listening to I, you. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So... Those are our top three points. And we'll end the episode there. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We always appreciate you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you to our production team, producer Kyle Ackerman, executive producer Shannon Deer, and the hosts of the Mindless Millennials podcast and pre-launch executive producer Bailey Mullins. Give the Mindless Millennials podcast a listen. You'll find the Mindless Millennials show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, mindlessmillennials.com, or wherever you find your podcast content.